It don't matter where you bury me, I'll be home and I'll be free. Isn't that great to think about? With that in mind, if we were in a graveyard, a certain graveyard in Thurmont, Maryland, we might come across a tombstone with this inscription on it. Here lies an atheist all dressed up with nowhere to go. If we were to go to the northwest and find ourselves in Albany, New York, we'd find the tombstone of a man by the name of Harry Edsel Smith, born 1903, died 1942, and we would read this epitaph. Looked up the elevator shaft to see if the car was coming down. It was. Poor Harry. It was a quick and painless death, probably. And if we were to go to Rio Doso, New Mexico, we would find this inscription on another gravestone. Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. (laughs) Well, if the body of John the Baptist was buried in a spot where there was a tombstone upon which there was written an epitaph, it certainly would read this way. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an immensely great human being. He was great as seen in the numbers of people who flocked to hear him on fire for God, teaching The message of repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. Matthew tells us in Matthew 3, 5, how all of Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of those in the district of Jordan, that would be on the east and the west side of the Jordan River, came to hear him. I looked up how long it would take to walk, if we were in Jerusalem today, down toward Jericho, and then back again. It would be a 16-mile round trip. People walked that far to hear this man preach. And those who made up the crowd were varied in backgrounds. There were soldiers who made up the crowd who came to hear this great man preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. There were tax collectors. There were Pharisees who were the religious conservatives, the fundamentalists. Of Jesus' day. And then there were the Sadducees who were the liberals of Jesus' day. They all made up the congregation of this man. He was a man who was obviously great in terms of the numbers of people whom God used him to touch and the wide variety of people whom God used him to touch. But he was great mostly in the way he handled Jesus Christ's Success. Let's turn to the book of John, chapter 3. We start where we left off three Sundays ago when we studied the great passage on God's love for the world. We're on verse 22 of John, chapter 3 today. And we're going to study verses 22 through 30. Today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And invite you to follow in whichever version you have. John three twenty two. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. 
And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. What type of responses do we see to others' spiritual success? Well, the first kind of response we see is the response of competition. Competition, which is the child of jealousy. It's important to understand this. And it's competition seen in the hearts and lives of John the Baptist's disciples. And these men were agitated for a reason that probably would agitate you and me if we had been there in their place and been disciples of John the Baptist. You see, until Jesus shows up, John the Baptist was the only show in town. And then Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden, John the Baptist's crowds begin to wane as Jesus' crowds begin to grow. And it made them jealous, jealous for their leader, and really jealous for themselves, because they were close to this epicenter of the kingdom of God, which was coming to bear upon Israel in the world, for that matter, in the person of John the Baptist. They were jealous. It is a natural response, isn't it? Jealousy and competition, which is born of jealousy. When our favorite person or ourselves seem to be replaced by someone else, especially in the spiritual realm, it's interesting. Please turn, as you hold your place there in John 3, to James chapter 3. Let's begin with verse 13 of James chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. We see chaos beginning to brew in the disciples of John the Baptist. They are jealous and they are touchy. We see this when the Scripture tells us there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. You know, when we become jealous, we become edgy. And it doesn't take much to set us off. And here was a Jew, an unnamed individual, 
who was about the purification rites of the Jewish religion of that day. And John the Baptist's disciples got in an argument with them about their baptism as over against the baptism that they were occupying themselves with, these rites of purification. We know from reading the literature of the rabbis of those days that people went through elaborate washings of cold water. And it had nothing to do with external purity. It had to do everything with being in a right relationship with God. And here we see these people that follow John the Baptist's disciples. They're upset that attention is being drawn away from their rabbi, John the Baptist, and consequently from them. But also... They're upset with just about anybody they come into contact with. They become very competitive. And this is not something which is acceptable in the body of Christ. And James helps us to understand its origin. He says it is natural, and certainly it is natural for us to become jealous. And by natural, this is the word that is used to describe a natural person, a person who is not in Christ. It's used over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When Paul writes, a natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. It's natural. And when Paul writes to the Galatians, he talks about the works or the deeds of the flesh. And among those is this word, jealousy. When we're jealous, especially jealous of other people's spiritual successes, we are people who are acting contrary to the will of God. We're acting in what the Bible calls our flesh. We're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we are under the control of our own selfishness. But also, it not only is natural, but in verse 15 of James 3, it's demonic. I hope you understand. Did one of the tools of Satan that is used to break apart the body of Christ is jealousy. A spirit of competition. Now look, we read from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 45, as God speaks to Baruch, who is the disciple of Jeremiah. Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. That is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Paul reiterates this in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's this internal inclination which even we who know Christ are prone to. As we yield to the flesh and yield to our own selfish motivation instead of yielding to the Holy Spirit of God and trusting Him with our lives. And it is a tool which Satan uses to destroy churches. Some of you have been in churches which have been ripped apart by competition, by turf wars, by territorialism. They're selfish in their centrality. It's all about the people who want their way instead of understanding that we are not to be selfishly ambitious. We're not to be jealous. Rather, we are to aspire that God would be elevated. God and Jesus Christ would be honored in our lives individually and as a church. Competition is out of bounds. Jealousy is out of bounds for us if we follow Christ with a right heart. The church of Corinth was a church that was riddled with competition. We don't get out of the first chapter 
till we're introduced to the fact that there were cliques in the church. Some were saying, I am of Paul. Others were saying, I am of Apollos. Still others were saying, I am of Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name. And then the super spiritual people there said, I am of Christ. And there were factions in the church. There was competition in the church. There was selfish ambition. There was jealousy in the church. And do you know what Paul said in the third chapter? He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither is the one who plants, nor the one who waters anything, but God who causes the growth. And then he goes on to say, we are God's fellow workers. We who follow Jesus, we're part of a team. One of the things I think that makes a scenario which is so conducive to this kind of splintering in the church in America is because we are Americans. We are individualists. We are the offspring of people who were into rugged individualism. Remember your American history of the 19th century? And it's passed down from generation to generation. But the church of Jesus Christ is about a team. And if you don't understand that, you miss the point. We are the body of Christ. And we have no reason whatsoever to be jealous of one another. Because if anything good happens through another person's life or another church's life, it is Jesus who is doing that by the Spirit through that church. Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, says this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill of man came from the envy of one's neighbor. All is vanity and striving after wind. Look, we must not fall prey to the temptation of the devil, which really caters and panders to our own self-direction and become people who are jealous and respond to others' successes by competing with them. Well, here's the other way, and this is the really only legitimate way to respond to other people's successes as Christians, especially successes in other people's lives, in other groups' lives who are truly followers of Jesus Christ, by being content. John the Baptist is the picture of contentment, isn't he, in this passage? We're going to look at it in detail in just a moment. But just think about what had been his experience. Here was a man who, at the most, would have been about 31 years old at the time. I remember about my youth. I was trained from a child, not so much in my own home, but outside the home. In my schooling and by the culture, I was trained to be selfishly ambitious. To have great vision for my life. Now, please don't mishear what I'm saying. The best life anyone can have is a life that's surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to aspire to God's glory. In fact, the Bible says we have been given spiritual gifts for two purposes. To glorify God... That would include the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And also to edify or build up the church of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing wrong with aspiring 
to glorify the Lord and making a name for the Lord. In fact, that's our mission here on earth, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is everything wrong with selfish ambition, however. John the Baptist, I'm sure, was tempted by Satan to fall prey to this selfish ambition and become jealous himself. He had reasons not to be content. The crowds were thinning. His life of self-denial wasn't being rewarded. Remember, he chose a life of simplicity as well as a life of solitude in order to fulfill the mission which the Lord gave him. He had denied himself over and over and over again. His life was about self-denial for the kingdom of God. And to add to that, his best disciples had left him to become disciples of Jesus. Do you remember that when we studied chapter 1? Among those were Andrew and his brother Peter, and then their friend Philip, and then a man named Nathaniel. I mean, these people had been disciples of Jesus, and they began, I mean, John the Baptist, and they began to follow Jesus. That's tough. To see the men whom you've discipled, the women whom you have discipled, the children whom you have discipled, and all of a sudden, they go to someone else. That's hard in the flesh, at least. So let's ask the question, how was John the Baptist content? Do you want to be content? I think you wouldn't be here this morning if you would not be interested in having this kind of contentment when other people succeed. Well, how was John the Baptist content? This is not found in this particular passage, but it is found in the book of Luke, chapter 1. In Luke, chapter 1, verse 15, the Scripture tells us that when the angel came to the priest Zacharias and told him that he and his wife, who were in their old age, were going to have a child. They were both past the time that people were having children. And this is what this man, Zacharias, was told by the angel that the son who would be born out of the union of Elizabeth and Zacharias would be a child who was filled with the Holy Spirit of God from the womb. I don't know how that works, but in the womb, this unique individual would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then a little later in chapter 1, verse 45, the Scripture tells us that when Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth, came to see her to share this news that she was dying to share with someone, she couldn't share it with the residents of Nazareth, that she had become a person of child, not having known a man, even though she was a betrothed, to Joseph, and she came to share this time. It was the most joyous occasion for a Hebrew woman that she was with child. And she comes, she goes a long way south to see her cousin and tell her the good news. And when she told her cousin, not only did Elizabeth have great joy, but the Bible tells us that this child in the womb, six months in the womb, leaped for joy. Where did that joy come from in this infant in the womb. It came from the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says among the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. If we want to learn the secret of contentment, especially in the knowledge of others' spiritual successes, we just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I quite frankly could quit the message right now. I'm not going to because there's more to learn for us. But we could quit there. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, 
If you are under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, you're going to find yourself doing what Paul teaches we should do in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That we will rejoice when our brothers and sisters experience success spiritually. We will rejoice. So how was John the Baptist able to be content? He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Here's a second answer to that question. John the Baptist knew that a person's successes are from God. Look with me at verse 27. I love this verse. I'm sure you do too. And we're talking about John 3 now. So if you've lost your place there, make your way from James back to John 3:27. After his disciples came to him in verse 26, they said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. Now let's pause here just a moment. They were exaggerating. And this is another thing that happens when we become competitive and jealous. Satan begins to insinuate things to us that are not true. All people were not coming to Jesus and to be baptized. Lots of people were. Because if you look back up at verse 23, look at what the Scripture says. And John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there and they were coming. And the word translated were coming means they were coming and they were coming and they kept coming. And they were being baptized and they were baptized and they kept on being baptized. So there still was a steady stream of people coming to hear John the Baptist and to be baptized by John the Baptist. So we see this tendency. Do you have that tendency to listen to other voices than the voice of the Lord? And you get all stirred up with incomplete, false information in some cases. And you draw conclusions about other people's spiritual successes. Beware of the ploy of the devil in that way. Then verse 27, John. This is so vintage, John the Baptist. He answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And what does not meet our English reading eyes, if we were able to read the language of the New Testament, which is Greek, for a Greek writer or speaker to show emphasis, what that writer or speaker would do, would put the word that was being emphasized at the very first of the sentence. So if you could read Greek and you looked at this passage in Greek, the word which you would see and I would see at the first of this statement, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven, would be the word nothing. Nothing a man can receive unless it's been given him from heaven. The emphasis is on the fact that I can't receive anything that is of value for myself and especially for the kingdom of God unless it comes from heaven. It says it has been given to this person from heaven. The Bible says in the book of Romans 11.29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Do you know what irrevocability is? It means something cannot be broken. It's said, it is finished, it is done. The gift and the assignment which John the Baptist had received was that of being the one who is sent ahead of Jesus. He is the path maker before Jesus. He's the matchmaker. John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. He knew his place, and the consequence of that was that he was able to enjoy the success of Jesus. 
and we as well, when we understand that our success comes from God. Franz Joseph Haydn, the great Austrian composer in March of 1808, he was, on, he was only 76 years old. Can you imagine? And his long-anticipated performance of a piece which he had composed, The Creation, he performed that with an orchestra in Vienna. And it was stunning. The crowd was quiet. There was no coughing. There was no moving. And when it ended, then hush was on the crowd. But all of a sudden, a thunderous applause came and the people rose to their feet in recognition of this great work of the Master Haydn. And then he yelled, No, no, not from me, but from heaven alone comes all. Echoing the words of John the Baptist. One of my favorite figures in American history is George Washington Carver. Born a slave in 1860. He was liberated from slavery. Went on to make an incredible difference in his world. Not just for himself. He made it for the Lord. He found 65 different uses for pecans. I can think of three I love right off the bat. Pecan pie. We call it Cairo pecan pie where I was raised. And then also just eating pecans raw. They're awesome. And I really like them when they're roasted with some salt on them. Wonderful, right? I could eat some right now. I'm hungry right now. I could, I could eat some. He found 118 uses for sweet potatoes. Some of you love sweet potatoes. He found 118 uses. He found, and this is what he's most noted for, 265 uses for peanuts. When he was being interviewed by someone who was curious about the source of his success, this is what he said. I didn't make these discoveries. God has only worked through me to show to some of his children his wonderful providence. God was working through them. He knew it. By the way, his biographer said he found 365 uses for the Bible too. He was a man of God's Word every day while he was munching on some peanut butter at lunch. He was reading the Word of God. That's what his biographer said. He was a man of the Word of God. He was a man of God. All Scripture is God-breathed. and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Part of George Washington Carver's good work, remember, he's a scientist. And God used him to produce many great things. For mankind. John the Baptist could tolerate the success of Jesus because he knew that God had sovereignly selected Jesus as the Messiah. He knew that. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 11, that God causes or works all things according to the counsel of His will. Let me try to interpret that just a little bit. What does that mean? That God causes all things to work together according to the counsel of His will. What this means is that God has a plan. Nothing can thwart that plan. It looks at times that God is being overridden. But God has the habit, it's His nature, to cause all things to work together for good 
for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God is in control of the events of your life. You are a child of God. If you know Jesus, you are a child of God. The Spirit of God indwells you. And as part of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, part of the sovereignty of God, what God has determined is what gift or gifts you have. The Holy Spirit of God, according to Hebrews 2.4 and 1 Corinthians 12.11, has chosen what gift you may have. And I would say this about God the Father. God the Father has placed you in the family in which you find yourself. God has placed you in the city in which you find yourself. God has placed you in the vocation in which you find yourself. God has placed you in the church in which you find yourself. God is sovereign over all of that. And when we understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and are yielding to the Holy Spirit's domination in our lives, control in our lives, we are under the sovereign control of God by the Holy Spirit and we recognize that all these things are according to the purpose of His will, then we can be content. Your lack of contentment is probably, in large part, if you have any, due to a misunderstanding of the nature of God and the plan He has for your life. John the Baptist was unable to accept his role in the kingdom of God. And how beautifully... He describes his role in verse 29. Look at it. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now, what is this little parable all about? This was a common occurrence in Palestine at this time. The friend of the bridegroom would be like the best man in a man's wedding today, but he had more to do than just to have the ring in his hand to give it to the preacher who's performing the ceremony. The responsibility of this individual, he was called a shoshman, is the Hebrew word for it. The shoshman's responsibility was to make all the arrangements for the wedding. He was the wedding planner. And then he was the one to oversee the wedding. He was like the steward at the wedding. And his duties were not over until the evening of the wedding... He would make his way to the bride's chamber, stand in guard over the door, and wait. And this was highly symbolic, but it was more than simply symbolic. Wait until the groom came to the bride's chamber and spoke his voice when he was asked by the friend of the bridegroom who goes there. And of course, the friend would know the voice of his best friend. And then his joy was complete. Isn't that what John says? This joy of mine has been made full. Why? Because he did what he was given to do. Do you know how we can have this kind of contentment marked by joy? It's that we understand who we are in Christ. We understand what Christ has given us To do after having learned who we are. We know who we are and we know what we're to do. We're not to resist being who we are or doing what God has given us to do. And the result is great joy. And we link the bridegroom, Jesus, up with the bride, His church. We help people who don't know Christ come to know Christ. We exercise 
our trust in Christ, we are filled with the Spirit. And Jesus, remember, said this to the apostles before He ascended in heaven. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. As you go, make disciples of all the nations. This was Jesus' command to the apostles, and it is His command to us. We're matchmakers, as it were, putting people who don't know Christ in touch. And our joy is no greater than when the Lord uses us in some small way to introduce people to Himself. According to archaeological discoveries, the Babylonian culture and the Sumerian culture, which were contemporary to a degree with the nation of Israel, if you know your ancient history, they had laws, written laws, that said the friend of the bridegroom could not marry the bride. Now, just think about this just a minute. Miles Standish. And what was the other guy's name? John Alden, right? In the Mayflower story, remember? And one employed the other to go and try to win the hand of a certain maiden. I think her name was Priscilla. And actually, she ended up marrying the guy that was a friend of the proposed bridegroom. Well, that could have happened in biblical times too. But according to the law, you couldn't do it. In fact, you would be punished very severely if you cheated on your best friend and took the woman he had wanted for his bride for himself. John the Baptist knew that. He would not think about doing that with regard to the church of Jesus Christ, nor are we to think in those terms. John the Baptist was content, and we can be as well, knowing who we are, Knowing we have a place to play, a part to play, yes, in the body. And it's great to be part of the body of Christ, isn't it? Do you ever see yourself as overlooked in the church or outclassed in the church? Remember that no one receives any success unless it's given him or her from heaven. And you have been given a place in the family of God and you have been given a mission within the context of the family. And it has direct relationship to your spiritual gift. And you might say, what does that mean? What it means is, you need to go to the Word of God and study Romans chapter 12, the first part. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, study that. Go to Ephesians 4, study that. Go to 1 Peter 4, study that. And the Holy Spirit will reveal to you what the gifts are. And He will show you, if you ask Him, to show you what your gift might be. And you can exercise it in the body of Christ. Here's a third thing. John the Baptist was able to be content, first of all, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, because he understood the sovereign grace of God. That God was in charge of his life. And he answered to the Lord. Here's the third thing. John the Baptist didn't take himself too seriously. Notice I say too seriously. He took himself seriously, but not too seriously. Look at verse 28. You yourselves, as he speaks to his disciples, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. He did not have a Messiah complex, did he? He knew who Jesus was. Jesus is the Messiah. He's not. And we need to understand that too. John the Baptist 
had a man who came after him who was in some ways like him, John Wesley, having the same given name. Wesley was a founder of Methodism, and his biographer says this about him. All that I would point out is that John Wesley fully believed that the higher the Christian's attainments, the lower will be his view of himself. For him, this was a clear principle. And then he quotes Wesley. Listen to this statement that John Wesley made. Of this I am fully assured. I grow, talking about spiritual growth, and am less. I am become more ashamed of myself and more dependent on God. The love of Christ is my study. But I am frequently at a loss to understand how it is that my love to Him is so small. Any of us who have sought the Lord... If you've gone very far with the Lord, you understand what John Wesley said. We begin probably thinking a little too highly of ourselves. But as we grow spiritually, Jesus becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as we get closer to Him. And He becomes more stunning to us. And we feel dwarfed. But He relieves that feeling of being dwarfed by reminding us of who we are. Better said, reminding us of of whose we are. We are children of God. And He has great plans for us. But we're not to take ourselves too seriously. Here's the fourth thing. And this is, to me, probably the best of all, in terms of my personal experience. And that is, He magnified the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 30. For many years... In my early walk with the Lord, this was my motto, and to some degree has continued to be, He must increase, but I must decrease. Notice the mustness, the oughtness. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the will of God. John the Baptist was committed to the will of God. And let me remind you that the Bible says, He who does the will of God lives forever. Some of the translations say... He who does the will of God lasts forever. Do you want your life to last forever? And I'm not just talking about living forever and ever and ever. Do you want your life to count forever? Wow. It can. And it will. If you embrace the will of God. A large part of it is to be found in magnifying Jesus. He must increase but I must decrease. Michelangelo, the great sculptor, artist, was working on a piece of marble. And one of his close friends visited him one day. He knew of this work that was being undertaken by Michelangelo. And he looked at it and he says, I can't see anything in what you're doing. And then Michelangelo simply said in response, As the marble wastes, the statue grows. When Christ begins to work in our lives, the Bible says He's there. And He's sometimes imperceptible in His presence. In Galatians 4.19, the Apostle Paul writes this. He said, once again, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now, you women who have given birth know what that's like. Labor. That's intense, isn't it? It is painful. Here's Paul. He likens himself to a woman in labor. 
And once again, until what Christ has formed in him. And here's what we need to get in our minds. Understand this. That when we come to Christ, we're babies in Christ. Nothing wrong with beginning in infancy. We're all infants. But we are to grow in Christ. And the way we grow, and this is ironic, we grow by decreasing. And that means we grow by decreasing in selfishness and being self-centered. What is true of a baby? A baby is self-centered. Is there anybody who ever had a baby who's in this room who had to teach your child to be self-centered? Babies are self-centered, right? And what happens when we're born with self-centered? And as we grow, as the marble wastes, the statue grows. As we say no to ourselves in order that we might say yes to Jesus Christ, what happens? This is what happens. Jesus becomes more and more prominent in our lives until He becomes the one who is preeminent in our lives. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, he probably was the one individual who was used the most for the spread of the gospel in the 19th century in that great land of China. In his old age, he was in Australia speaking to a group of missionaries. Probably a thousand people were there at least, he got this wonderful introduction. It was so flowery and full of superlatives. And when he got up to speak before he began, he said, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Here's this great person of God. And that was his response. The little servant of an illustrious master speaking of Jesus. William Sangster, a fellow British man, along with Taylor, in the next century after Taylor lived. When he spoke to 2,000 Methodist pastors, he was considered the leading light among Methodist pastors. He was looked up to by all. And he was given the responsibility to start the conference with prayer. And this is what he said to the Lord. Lord, we don't care who is second as long as you are first. John the Baptist understood that. He was content because he didn't mind being second. I remember reading something about Leonard Bernstein, who was at the time the director of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. And he was asked by a music critic, Mr. Bernstein, what is the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? And he didn't hesitate. He said, second fiddle. It's the hardest. Not to be in the center of attention, but being unrecognized. Not getting pats on the back, not getting the applause, but being integrally important to the performance. And it doesn't matter where you are in the body of Christ in terms of your gifting or your responsibility. You're in the body of Christ. Praise the Lord. You're in. And just be content. And you can be. If you'll magnify Jesus, you'll be content in this regard. In summary, how are we to be content? Mark this down. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know I'm sounding redundant here. What does that mean? It means to yield your life by faith totally to the rule of the Holy Spirit in your life. Secondly, understand and believe that God is sovereign 
over all the events of your life. That's critically important. That He works all things according to the counsel of His will in your life. The third thing is, don't take yourself too seriously. Learn to laugh at yourself every once in a while. Can you laugh at yourself? I have plenty of opportunity to do that. The fourth thing is, magnify Jesus. Magnify the Lord. The Spirit's filling in your life will bring that into your heart. You will want to magnify Jesus. And when we magnify Jesus, what happens? He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I want to be that kind of follower of Christ. And this church, listen, this church, if we want to be more than mediocre, we're going to be people who take John the Baptist as our patron saint, in a way, and follow his example. And be men and women. And be a church that's not about competition. There shouldn't ever be any breath uttered about competing with other churches or with ministries within the church or with people within the church. That is natural, fleshly, and yes, demonic. And we need to be done with it. If there's any evidence of that, any hint of that in me, I need to respond quickly in repentance and rejection of any notion of that sort. I want to close with a statement that Eugene Peterson makes in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. You know him as the one who has produced the message. Listen to these words carefully. His critique of American Christianity. His critique of our church, perhaps, and maybe of me and you. The greatest weakness of North American spirituality is that it is all about us fulfilling our potential, expanding our influence, finding our gifts, getting a handle on principles by which we can get an edge over the competition. And the more there is of us, the less there is of God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for being about us in our homes, Lord, we pray knowing that if You increase and we decrease, our homes are going to be changed. We won't need marriage counseling anymore. Lord, in our workplace, our workplace is going to be changed. Even when we are facing very difficult situations, a boss who does not understand us, those who work for us, who don't follow us. Lord, if we understand this principle and we apply it that you must increase and we must decrease and all these things are under the counsel of your will Lord we ask you to help us to be like Jesus in our homes in our workplace and yes Lord in our church this is your church thank you for saving us help us to be tools in your hand to save others we ask this in Jesus name Amen